Most of you will become fathers someday. Not all of you. Not all of you will marry. Uh, most of you will. And those who marry, most of you will have children. Not all of you, because there are choices not to have children, and then there are reasons you don't have children that are not your own choice. But whether you're married or whether you have children, you will all be men for the rest of your eternity. And you're called upon to assume certain roles, I believe, in the family and in churches and in society that are different from women. That's a very controversial thing to say. I've taken more flack for that than anything I've said in the last two hours. I've written a couple of things on it, and uh, it's not a popular view in our egalitarian age to say that men have unique and peculiar callings from God that are different from what women have, but I believe that. I think it'll come out in what I say And my goal in this time is in large measure to help you become fathers, you might say fathers in Israel, fathers to Christians, whether you're married or whether you're single, whether you're biological fathers or adoptive fathers or fathers of nephews. Every man should be a father. And fathering takes a certain amount of maturity and responsibility And you're on your way there, and I'd just like to give you a booster. I'd like to put a rocket under your maturity level this morning, because I think uh, most of us get forced into growing up. We don't choose to grow up. We just get forced into it, because you finish school after high job, or you... you, um, Whether you finish high school or finish college, whatever you I'd like you to, to embrace it, to uh, choose it. So, you're, you're, you're 18, Barnabas is 18, just got accepted to Wheaton College, and that's probably where he'll go. And uh, I have a son who's 21, and a son who's 25, and a son who's 28. Uh, the 28-year-old teaches English at Worthington Minnesota Community College, and the 25-year-old is a student at Moody, having done some uh, military stuff in between and gotten a practical degree in plastic mold making, and and uh, Abraham is not walking with the Lord and breaking my heart, and uh, when I finish talking, and I told Neil, I finish, I walk off over there, and I go around behind, and I watch you worship. Everything in me can only think about one thing. Put Abraham out there. Worshipping. He's trying to make it in music. He wants to be a rock star. He's a good music maker and singer. And uh, and I look at these worship leaders and I say, You could do that, Abraham. You'd be good at it. Do that. So pray for Abraham. He wouldn't mind me saying this. I mean, the church knows he's not where he's supposed to be, and and uh, he loves me to death. He'd die for me. He's not in rebellion against me. He says, Daddy, intellectually, I think probably you've got the case. It's just not mine. Isn't that frightening? Kid grows up in a house like mine and looks his dad in the face and says, I love you, and it's not mine. And I, I hope inside he's saying, Yet. <laughs> so then there's Barnabas and he's he's gold. 
He's a worship leader at the church and, and ministers in the city. And so it's painful to be a father. Painful. Some of you broke your dad's hearts. Some of you are breaking them right now, probably. And some of you have broken hearts because of your dad, who wasn't what he was supposed to be. Maybe you don't even know who he was. And so dads are important. Being dads in a church, being dads in a family, being single dads. And by that, I don't mean go out and get a girl pregnant. I mean care for kids like a father, whether you're married or not. And anybody younger than you is a candidate for that role. So I'm going to move from general to specific in talking about what the Bible says about families and fathering And some of these are going to sound so broad, you'll wonder, well, how can that be of any immediate relevance to me? And I hope you you don't think that way exactly. Um, But we'll get to things that are very nitty-gritty before we're, we're done here in a few minutes. So let me start with a thesis. This is it. Uh, The family exists. God created the family, ordained the family. Family exists. By the creation and design of God, sustained by the providence of God, to be ordered by the word of God, all to display the glory of God. That's why the family is. Came into being by God's design. It's upheld by his daily providence. It is to be ordered and guided and structured around his word. Not just any old idea that comes into your head how a husband and wife should relate or how you relate to kids. And it exists to display the glory of God. We'll see that in detail. That's my thesis. And in a sense, I think campus outreach should concern itself And you as individuals should concern yourself not primarily, subordinately, but not primarily with commending particular structures of family or structures of relationship in family, but mainly commend to the world that the main thing about family is God. The display of God in Christ, the passing on from generation to generation of a vision of God and bring everything in relation to God. I I hope that you pick up between the lines of everything I say in these messages that what, what he's really trying to get across is life is all about God. Nothing is not about God. Whether you eat or drink, that's basic. Pizza is about God. Pepsi is about God. Cars are about God. Computers are about God. Girlfriends are about God. Sex is about God. Eyes and hands and feet are about God. Everything. God made everything. He upholds everything. Everything is designed for his glory. So when you think family and father and manhood, think God. So that's the overall basic thesis. And I've got what I would call ten propositions or statements about God and family. So I'm just going to tick them off. Some I'm going to linger over a little longer because I think they might be of more immediate relevance to you. Number one, family is not God. And all the satisfaction that we feel in it is potential idolatry. And a threat to worship, as are all legitimate pleasures in this world. Family is not God, 
And all the joys of sex in it, or parenting in it, or friendship in it, or common vision and ministry in it, are potential idols threatening a true, wholehearted worship of God. Luke 8.14, I'll try to give you a verse for each one of these. The seed of the word which fell on the thorns, these are the ones who have heard as they go on their way and are choked by the pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. So I can preach the word here and they can, the word can be choked by the pleasures of life. And it doesn't say sinful pleasures. Legitimate pleasures can kill the Word of God. It isn't mainly adultery and fornication and, and pornography that kill Christians. That's, most Christians are not killed by that. Most Christians are killed by the other TV programs that are called okay. Just food. Just uh, working out of the gym. Something totally innocent becomes dominant, powerful, keeps you away from God, and becomes wicked in its innocence, in strangling the Word. Most Christians are not strangled by sinful pleasures, but by good pleasures. So beware of the danger of the family, because there's some wonderfully good pleasures in the family. That's point number one. Point number two, or proposition two. The family is the first place, the last place, the greatest place of pain and futility in human life. And thus the family is the first and primary place for learning the price of forsaking and neglecting God. Adam and Eve, a family. Not quite yet with children. They sin. They forsake God. They neglect God. Where does the pain show up first? Answer, in the marriage. In the relationship. That's true historically. It's true experientially. In your life. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Pain begins at home. The first place you will experience pain is in your home. The first place you will experience tragedy is in your home. Your parents will never be what you thought they should be. Even good parents are imperfect parents. You'll break their heart, they'll break your heart. Pain is the first place. Home is designed to be a place where we experience pain first and learn, if God is there, to know what to do with it. It's also the place of, of great pain. Nobody can hurt you like those who love you. Nobody can hurt you like those who love you. And you can... You can hate more those you have loved most than anybody else. Remember Amnon, who wanted his sister, wanted to have sex with his sister? Remember that story in the Old Testament? And uh, and his, his brother set it up. So, got along with her, brought in the food, grabs her, 
crawls in bed with her. She says, don't, don't, don't. Even the sinners in Israel, don't do this. And he rapes her. As soon as it's over, he says, get out of here. And she said, I'm not leaving here. You're going to just send me away. And he made her go. And she went crying and tearing her clothes. And it says, he hated her more when he was done than he loved her at the beginning. Home is a place where love is so strong and bonds are so deep, hatred can be huge. So beware of how volatile the things are that can happen in a family. Third observation. In a fallen world, God ordains the pain of loving discipline from parents to rescue children from the folly of life and reveal the holiness of God. So I want to talk a minute about discipline. You got to get this right now because when you start dating and you fall in love and you start talking marriage with a girl, one of the things you ought to talk about is how do you handle kids? Do you believe in spanking or do you not believe in spanking? Do you believe in telling a kid go stand in front of a, in the corner and take time out, never touching him, never lay a hand on him or do you believe in behinds are made for wallops? What do you, what do you believe? And if you don't get together on that, you're going to have big trouble. So my point is, God has ordained pain, loving discipline from parents to rescue children from folly. He compares the discipline of a father with the discipline of God in Hebrews 12, the chapter after I just preached on. It is for discipline that you endure, he says in Hebrews 12, 11, 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All discipline for the moment is not joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Parenting is meant to be a safe and loving place for children to experience pain. The pain of folly. And learn the peace of righteousness so that they know God as judge and they know God as father and loving kind friend. Therefore, don't fail to discipline your children lovingly. Many of you grew up in homes where you had no good model of this at all. You just got slapped around and you may have resolved, I'll never slap my kid. I'll never slap my kid around. And you go to the other extreme, like I read, it's just a big billboard in the Twin Cities, never, 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 never harm a child. I say, oh, that harm, probably that's okay. Yeah, all right, I agree, harm. But I think what the people who read that think is never spank a child. Never make a child cry because you have hurt their thigh. Or they're behind. Or squeeze this little nice, juicy, meaty part of their shoulder here. <laughs> now, the Bible has some pretty clear things to say about disciplining. But I, I want to be careful here. Because I know I could send you into child abuse here. If I'm not careful. Or I could send you into lackadaisical, do-nothing fathering that hopes the kid will turn out okay. And keep himself out of the street. And keep himself off drugs. And keep himself out of the bed and, and so on, but you just never, you never force him to do anything. 
Between those is what's called loving, caring discipline. You can taste it when you're around it because the dads hug their kids a lot. They kiss their kids. You know, my 18-year-old now and then kisses me goodnight still. (laughs) I love it. I'm sitting there at my computer. He doesn't do this every night, just when things are going well, I suppose. He knocks on the door, says, I'm going to bed. And I wonder, he doesn't usually tell me he's going to bed. He doesn't always tell me he's going to bed. I kind of do like this, maybe. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I'm sitting there. He walks over. He's 6'2". And he plays football for South High. And he leans over. And I kiss him on the cheek. There's nothing small about that, guys. And probably the reason that happens is because my dad was an evangelist and preached all over the country and left home every few weeks and came home every few weeks. He was gone three-fourths of my life. But I said goodbye and hello to my dad hundreds of times and kissed him every time. He kissed me every time. So it's my family. Some of you have never been kissed by your dad, I bet. So what I'm saying is you got to show some real tangible physical affection. Get out on the floor and play and build it into the lives of your family that you're going to play with your kids. Not if you have time. You do other things if you have time. So I'm a pastor, busy. I could stay busy round the clock doing stuff, meeting people's needs. We eat at 5.30. From there until 7 is sacred, and I play with my kids. That's called playtime. doesn't happen with the 25 and 18-year-old anymore of the way it did, but now I've got a 5-year-old girl we adopted five years ago. And so I'm starting all over again. And Talitha gets her playtime all to herself. Now, playing with this, I did this four times with guys. I know guys. Now I'm doing it with a girl. This doesn't make any sense to me. I'm turning these little kids into bombers, you know, these little teeny dolls. And uh, I'm saying, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's build the blocks up here, and then we'll fly her over. She'll drop a block on it and blow it up. <laughs> she says, let's play people. Well, okay, what do you mean? <laughs> well, and she goes over and gets her house out, puts out all the people. I say, well, what, what are they going to do? What's going to happen? Well, they're going to have supper. <laughs> That's all? Well, yeah. He's, okay. We'll put two on this side and two on that side. No. And she, re- the whole playtime is just rearranging people. And <gasps> Come on, we got to have a bomber. we got to have a helicopter. <laughs> Something's got to blow up. I mean, I knew how to play with guys. They just ate it up. We just knocked the blocks down. And I'm learning. I'm trying to figure this out because I'm going to be there for her for these next years because I'm going to be 65 when she's 15. Will she care about me? Will, 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 will she want me around when she's got to face guys and deal with sexual things and guys are going to want her? And will she come to me? Will she listen? My investment right now is the answer to that question. Right now. Do I give myself to her? Do I get my hands on her purely, purely, 
so that she knows what it's like to be touched purely, hugged, held in my lap, kissed, felt, feels a man's body, and it's okay. You don't have to sell yourself to a man's body. You know what a pure thing is like. You can wait for it. Dads are so important in girls' lives and boys' lives. They grow up healthy because dad touched them in the right way. Hugged them and played with them. Now, I, I, I'm saying all that to justify spanking. <laughs> I'm saying if you love them like that, spanking will be experienced as redemptive. you got to spank your kids. I believe the Bible says to spank kids. And uh, my wife and I have never slapped a kid uh, out of anger. I've been angry when I've spanked them. I don't think you have to get over that. You need to give yourself some time and space, but you don't just whack if they've done something wrong. That's that's evil. But you say, did you hear what your mother just said? Yes. And you did just the opposite? Yes. Go to your room. I'll be there in a minute. Well, now, if they're little, they start crying on the way to the room. And you go up and, and they're standing there. And I said, you know what has to happen? Yes. Why'd you do that? I don't know. I said, well, you're not going to do it again. Because every time you do it, I'm going to spank you. Defiance of your mother's word is evil. It's wrong. And you get spanked. So bend over my leg. Back, one, two, whatever. Ah, cry. And my kids always hug me when they're crying. Isn't that wonderful? They hug me. That's the way we should relate to God in the midst of discipline. The safest place from God's discipline is around the neck of God. Here's an illustration of that. I, you know, what does it mean by the fear of God? Dads should so relate to their kids that intimacy and fear are combined so that their kids know God. You are God to your kids for a long time. And then they know God because they know you. My little boy, Kirsten, when he was about six, went with me. Well, he must have been about eight. I'm trying to do the math, math here. We went to see Dick Teagan. Dick Teagan had a German shepherd that was eyeball to eyeball with Karsten. And Karsten, the door was door opened and Karsten looking straight into the eyeballs of this dog. And he likes dogs, but he'd never seen a dog that big. And Dick said, dog's friendly, no problem. But, you know, the tail could knock you over for a little kid. So he petted him, and that's nice. And then I said, uh, oh, we forgot something out in the car. Carson, would you go get the uh, film or whatever it was out in the car? He said, sure. And he started running, and this dog gallops up behind him with a low growl. And he stops, and Dick says, oh, I meant to tell you, she doesn't like when people run away from her. So just walk beside her. I thought, if that's not a beautiful picture of the fear of God. God doesn't like it when people run away from him. He growls. And you know what the safest place? Not to run faster. You can't outrun God. Turn and hug him. That's the fear of God. Fear doesn't drive you away from hugging. It drives you toward hugging. So I got my little kid. I just spanked her. And she's hugging me. I say, okay. Have a good cry. It's all right. I don't let my kid cry because they don't want to eat. I say, stop crying. You do not cry except 
for real pain or real emotional hurt. But you don't cry out of rebellion. Don't cry. So here she's got a reason to cry. I just spanked her. I said, good, cry, cry on until you're done. And we blow the nose. And now I sit her there. I say, I love you. And I don't want you to grow up to be disobedient. God says, children, obey your parents. So every time you disobey blatantly, there's going to be consequences. Okay. And that's it. Oh, she's happy. But if you, if you don't discipline her at that point, and day after day goes by, she won't be happy. The most, the most frustrating, bully kinds of kids are the kids that never get any firm discipline. And, and parents think they're, they're, I had a, I had a woman tell me one time, I'm not, she watched me discipline my kid one time in Germany. She was in the military. And, uh, and she said, I would never spank my kid. Everybody in the room that heard that whispered under their breath, that's obvious. Because this kid was the terror of the apartment house. And then she said, and then she said, I don't want to teach my kid violence. Now listen, you don't have to teach a kid violence. He knows violence. He'll whop his sister upside the head anytime he, she gets his block. You don't teach kid violence. You discipline violence out of them with loving discipline. Okay, I spent more time on that one than I thought I would, but we'll let providence decide here. Number four, am I on number four? God commands parents, especially fathers, to take primary responsibility for building biblical truth into the lives of children with a view to preserving confidence in God for all generations. Especially fathers, I say. God commands parents, especially fathers, to take primary responsibility for building biblical truth in the lives of children. Not primarily pastors and not primarily moms. Moms for sure have a role in this. A big role. Dads bear the main responsibility. However you handle that responsibility. Here's the text I'm thinking about. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your together should get equal honor. Then it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why didn't Paul continue on? Fathers and mothers do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers and mothers bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not because moms shouldn't be involved, especially single moms. They got to do it all. The reason is, dads, you bear a special responsibility. So, men, think this way now. Right now, as you cultivate relationships with women, you should be thinking about certain dynamics of how they're involved, you're involved, but there's a unique responsibility as relationships form where men have a certain special burden to bear. And I like the word burden to bear rather than right to claim. You know, this, I'm going to talk about husbands being leaders and wives being submissive. But if you think of that as a right to claim, put her down and take the place, you get it wrong. It's a burden to bear. It's a responsibility to carry. It's a painful thing to be a leader in a relationship and have to take the initiative with kids. I mean, it's so much easier to just sit on the couch and let the kids say no five times 
to his mom rather than get up and leave the TV show and walk him up to his bedroom and have that little talk and that little spank and that little hug. And now you've missed 10 minutes of the show and you've done it twice already and it's just hard work. It's just plain hard work. Why doesn't she do it? Well, she does it plenty when you're not around. And when mom and dad are both there, something very crucial is being communicated to this kid as to who takes the initiative. If mom's always taking the initiative, dad's a wimp. Now, listen, you know this better than I. I don't have a television. I haven't had a television for 32 years. My boys grew up in a home without a television, and they are smart, savvy kids. I live in reality in the poorest neighborhood in Minneapolis. I don't watch reality. I live in reality. I chose to live in Phillips' neighborhood so that my kids would see this reality, learn to relate to it. Our church is right downtown, and they don't need to learn it from television. They know television way better than I do because they see it in all their friends' houses, and I don't have any hard and fast rules about that. It's just not going to be there governing our house. Now, I forgot the point I was going to make about that. I was going to make a point. Oh, shoot. What was it going to be? Ephesians, Dad... Oh, dad's main responsibility, back up, rerun, tape. Mm. It was going to be a good point. Well, uh, oh, say that again. Dad's a whip. Thank you. That's it. You've been, you've been watching too much television. <laughs> Thank you. Every TV advertisement, every TV program, the guy is a jerk, right? I mean, where do you go where you see a big, noble vision of manhood over against a smart, intelligent, articulate woman, but the two are equal in worth, and the man is a strong, noble, smart, savvy, wise, caring, loving leader instead of an absolute bloke who doesn't know his right hand from his left? I mean, the assault on manhood in America today is incredible. And that's why you had this whole manhood thing in the last 15 years or so. And they don't get it right either. The secular manhood movement, they don't get it right. Because they don't know anything about Christ-likeness in relationship to women. So you got a big task in front of you when Paul says, especially fathers, especially fathers engage with your with your children. Observation number number five. In a fallen and perishing world, the harmony and cohesiveness of human families is subordinate to the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. Now, that's just a big sentence. Let me see if I can simplify what I'm saying. Don't make family harmony the ultimate value when it comes to redemptive decisions. Meaning, if God calls you to follow Christ and your mother and father say, if you follow Christ, you're not coming home again. That's happened a couple of times recently in my experience among Muslims in Minneapolis. Jewish people or overseas in a Hindu or a Muslim setting or in some secular settings. You, you, do, that, you do that Jesus thing and you're out of here. What do you do? 
You say, God created the family. The family should be unified. I'm not going to disobey my parents and so keep the family together and leave Jesus aside. No, you don't. You know you don't because Jesus said this. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Now, family is precious. And here's Jesus taking this precious thing and saying, I'm more precious. You hold to me. If it splits the family, you hold to me. You don't try to split the family. You do anything you can to keep from splitting the family. But if it's between the family and me, you choose me. So that's what I mean by point number five. Number six. While it is not good for men to be alone, Genesis 2.18, it is worse to be married when called and gifted to be single for the Lord's sake. The ideal aim of marriage in the created order is subordinate to the demands of devotion to Christ. So, should you marry? Should you marry? Big question for almost everybody in this room. Should you marry? The answer is maybe, maybe not. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, wrote, I wish that all were single as I am. However, each has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to secure your undistracted devotion to the Lord. This is not easy. I don't have any pat answers for this. I just know that not everybody in this room is called to be married. And not everybody's called to be single, but some are to be single and some are to be married. Do, don't think that singleness is not a legitimate option in our day. It does put you in a precarious and difficult position sexually and relationally. It's awkward to be a 45-year-old single man or a 50-year-old single man like Jesus was and Paul was and John Stott was, is, is. But it's real. So weigh seriously and don't sell yourself to any woman who wants you who isn't spiritual. Now, usually I'm dealing with women who, who would love to be married and can't find a man worthy of her. That is, there's so few non-spiritual men in the world. I'm on a recruitment Crusade in this room right now to help you become better candidates for being married to the best kind of women. Don't settle for any woman who just likes you. I'll tell you, I didn't date in high school and uh, was kind of scared of women. And I had so such a bad case of acne, I didn't think anyone would want to look at me anyway. And, and I was nervous. And uh, the fact that I'm married is a colossal miracle. Which, which God will do for you if he, if he thinks it's best for you. And the, the Apostle Paul said not everybody should pursue marriage. 
So I spent a long time thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to be. And I knew how vulnerable I was. When I went off to college, I said, okay, if it's going to happen, it'll probably happen here. 18 to 22 is probably where you're going to find her. And I was so wired to love any woman who would love me. Because I thought nobody ever will. And if one were to appear and show some interest in me, I would just fall. Which is in fact what happened. And that God chose the woman he did for me was spectacular grace because I was in no real spiritual condition to be wise. And I want you guys to be wise. Don't just go for the first woman who's interested in you. She's got to be a Christian. And if you are any kind of Christian, she's got to be some kind of Christian. And not just say, oh, sure, I'm a Christian. Oh, sure. I want you. And if I were talking to women, I'd say exactly the same thing. Only for them it's harder because in 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 uh, the way I think it should be, men should take the initiative in forming those relationships. I don't think women should be going around calling up men and taking the initiative to form relationships. I think you guys should do that. And not enough of you have the gumption to do that. I didn't have the gumption. And I feel shamed about it when I was... 18 to 22, that I didn't take the gumption to pull together wholesome relationships where those kinds of things could could take place because I was so timid. I didn't trust Christ enough. Don't leap at a relationship without Christ. Put a sieve up there and don't touch a woman. Don't form any kind of ongoing romantic relationship with a person who's not a Christian. Seven. Marriage is the one and only sacred haven for sexual union. And this union is God's ministry of protection from Satan's temptation for husbands and wives. I'll read you where I'm getting that from 1 Corinthians 7 again. Because of immoralities, because of fornication, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. In other words, sexual relations outside marriage are wrong. Period. That's why that sentence makes sense. Because of fornication, let everybody have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Why? Because it's wrong to have those relations outside marriage. That's the way God has designed it. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, that is, of sexual relations. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you. Because you, of your lack of self-control. Come together again, lest Satan tempt you. Isn't that amazing? Sexual relations is spiritual warfare. Come together again, lest Satan tempt you. Have enough sex. That's what he's saying. Have enough sex in marriage so that Satan is kept at bay. But it's not an easy thing to say to single guys. Because you don't have any woman to go sleep with tonight. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. And yet, this culture is titillating you every day. Stirring up those things that are designed to be fulfilled in marriage. What are you going to do with them? Well, most of you masturbate. 
And you, you, you take initiatives to get yourself all stirred up to do it. I don't think that's a good idea. I did it. I was in bondage like most of you are for about five years, I would say. And it was not a healthy thing. It wasn't a wholesome thing. I think there are ways out of it. I want to encourage you that God's patient. I wouldn't be here if he weren't patient. He's forgiving. He will forgive 70 times 7. But to settle in with it, to plan it, that's bad. So let me take a minute and just give you a word about strategy. I've, 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 I've fought sexual temptation inside and outside marriage now for over 40 years. And uh, I've learned a few things. And I, I live in, in some measure of triumph now. Part of that is because I have a wife, and therefore I can have sex anytime I want it. And my, I have a, I have, I have a very compliant wife who <laughs> is, is not begrudging of what I desire. Uh, I try not to take advantage of her, and I think, you know, when it says her body is your body and your body is her body, that's a very interesting paradox, because if your body is her body, and she is feeling, I don't want your body on my body. Then she has the right to tell you that. But if her body is your body and you want to be against her body, you have the right to tell her that. Well, who's going to win? The one who is most sacrificial and loving at the moment will give. That's a wonderful competition. To compete to be the most loving to be the most sacrificial, to meet the other person's needs, to make the other person happy. Now, those can be taken advantage of. A guy can rape his own wife almost, and a woman can withhold sex so long and so bad that she drives him away. But now you're single, and you don't have anybody to go home to, and you got years in front of you with this rage in your loins, as they called it in the Bible, your groin. What are you going to do with that? Your brain is engaged, your body's engaged, your heart's engaged, your palms are engaged, your legs are engaged, your hips are engaged. Everything about you wants this, and you can't have it, according to the Bible. And some of you have said, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm getting it, because to be human is to be sexual, and I want to be fully human, and so I'm, I don't care. And so, I don't know what percentage, dozens and dozens and dozens in this room have already had sexual relations and you should be ashamed of yourself and you should repent and and God will forgive God will forgive and make make a pure life possible for you so right now I want to encourage you you come into this room dirty defiled either having you know masturbated every day for the last three weeks or whatever or uh, finally you gave in last week and slept with her you come into this room just feeling so rotten And you wonder, is there any future for me in that kind of life you just described this morning in missions or in holiness? All that holiness singing stuff? Any hope for me? Well, the answer is yes. It's what the cross is all about. Cleansing us pure. Everybody can start over. So I hope you will. I hope you'll start over right now with a new kind of warfare. So here's a word about warfare. It's right off my front burner of how I do battle today. I think when a sexual desire or temptation comes, say uh, something flashes up on your email and you 
with just one hit of the mouse left button, you can have a naked woman. Or a show where you know there's nudity or a video that's lying around or a magazine or just fantasy. You just, you just saw something and it triggers a setting and it would just be fun to create that setting the way it just occurred to you. It might have happened. And she takes it off this way. Or you happen to walk by this or, and, and so now what are you going to do when that first touches you? The first thought touches you. You got about five seconds. You got about five seconds here. Not much longer. If you don't do the right thing in the first five seconds, you're probably a goner for that time. What do you do? Here's what I do. I say, now you gotta to bring to this experience some measure of biblical Longing, like we've been talking about, and commitment to a higher pleasure and a desire. You gotta have some measure of biblical commitment, which is what I hope is being built into you in campus outreach and times like this. You say, I say, I'll give you an exact illustration. I'm out cutting the grass last summer. My wife told me, we live in the city, she told me she saw a couple having oral sex behind our garage. You can see it from our, from our kitchen. She was so glad I wasn't there. She shouldn't have told me that. Because <laughs> I'm out cutting the grass, and I walk by the spot. This is a little nook, because there's a, there's a bush, and there's a little gap, and then there's this little fenced-in place. And it sort of shields you from everything but our kitchen window. And, uh, and as I walked by it, the thought entered my mind, I wonder what they were really doing. I have about five seconds that I can either run with that thought and create it for me or them, me doing it or me watching it. I can do that thing in my head or I can do something right now. So what I do is I say, no, I speak to the thought. I speak to the imagination. I speak to the situation. I say, no, in the name of Jesus, no to you. This is my mind. It belongs to Jesus to you, I say no. Now, I used to do that and fail. Because if you just keep saying no, 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 it's like saying, I'm not going to think about sex, I'm not going to think about sex, I'm not going to think about sex. And every time you say the word sex, you're thinking about sex. <laughs> it's hopeless. So the no is only step one. It won't work if all you say is no. Then you cry out, oh God, Join me, you've already helped me say no, join me in this no and help me triumph over the pursuit of this action or this thought. That's step two. No, in the name of Jesus and God help me. But now comes the thing it took me years and years to learn. The Bible assumes, and it is right, that your brain is a muscle that can be used according to what you direct it to do. And at that moment, you must direct it to another vision. You must put something positive or horribly negative in your mind as an alternative to this luscious thought or course of action. Let me give you this illustration of what I mean by positive or horrible. The positive would be something like this. I can remember in those masturbation days feeling so 
like, not just I've sinned and I've let my parents down. They don't know about it. I've let God down and I keep doing this. What's wrong with me? But also, I felt like I couldn't look at the sunset and enjoy it purely. I couldn't look at the stars at night and feel a noble-hearted joy in the stars. I couldn't look into a girl's face and feel like she's a person and not an object of stripping in my mind. All of life just seemed to get dirty because of these mental preoccupations. And I didn't want to lose the sunset. I didn't want to lose the stars. I didn't want to lose poetry. I didn't want to lose friendships with girls in a wholesome way. And I was throwing it all away for these brief momentary ejaculations that, I mean, the, the, the pleasure was so short. And when it was over, oh, let's go eat. I'm always hungry after I'm done. And what had to what had to happen what had to happen was that I began to want those things so bad that at that moment after I said no help me I would begin to think about the stars and I would begin to think about the sunsets and I'd begin to to think about wholesome relationships. So that was a positive alternative. And you fight you don't let it go. A lot of guys try this they try it for maybe three minutes. And then the other thing rushes back and says, well, that didn't work. How do you know it didn't work? He didn't fight 30 minutes. When I was pushing that lawnmower, it took me 10 minutes. 10 minutes of fighting. Every second of those 10 minutes. That's how much I used this muscle. Every time the, the scene came back, I said, no, and began to direct another direction. And I would start to think about the other direction. And it would start to, and then suddenly we'd be back again. I would say, no, how long are you willing to do that, guys? That depends on how much you want to be pure, how much you want to glorify Jesus. If you let this muscle in your head not keep making the effort to push the other out and to bring the other in, then you give it up and you don't have to give it up. Now, here's what I mean, and this is more common for me. The horrible thing, I'll give you two illustrations. And find your own, but these are the ones that work for me. The cross of Jesus Christ. Well, let me let me get to that. I'll put that last. And, and it may be all we have time to do. Yes, it will be all we have time to do. We'll close here after I'm done with this. I was riding my bicycle to Fuller Seminary down Orange Grove Boulevard one morning. This is now, I'm, I'm 20 three years old and in my first year of marriage and here comes this woman in those days early 70s skirts were short i mean embarrassingly short when women sat down they didn't know what to do with them and everybody was you know it's just i'm so glad longer skirts are in still not everybody wears them but i love them and here she comes and she's got one of these really short skirts on and she's quite pretty and my mind immediately is wow And you know the thought the Lord gave me? She's, she was crossing Allen Avenue, I believe. The thought came into my mind that she gets hit by a car right in front of me. Isn't this awful? Plastered. <laughs> and, and, and she's thrown 60 feet and, and I, I, I I put out my bike, I run over, now here's this body that I was lusting for a minute ago. 
is horrible. You know, just lacerations everywhere. And she's, she's dying. And she looks up into my eyes. What am I going to say? I lusted for you just before you died. No way. I want to have a word for that woman. There's a soul there. There's a person there's going to live forever in hell or forever in heaven. So ever since then, I've used that scene. I've brought it intentionally back to my mind. I've pictured a woman who could be at a moment a very voluptuous up person taking off her clothes in my head. Or she could be suffering horribly because of some disease or some accident. And I have the last word with her. And I'll tell you, at those moments, God has emotionally pulled me back from treating her the object way by using that one situation of dying. Now, here's the last one. More often than anything, I think this is of the Lord. I think this is biblical. Those are kind of my imaginative ways of handling it. This one is biblical. Jesus Christ died in order to purify you. That's what it says in Titus 3.14. He died to purify for himself a people. So Christ died. So here comes that thought. This is the one I used the, the lawnmower morning. I was pushing the lawnmower. This sight, oral sex coming in my mind. And I'm thinking, and he said, no, help me. And then I start thinking about Jesus. And I get really graphic here. I get really graphic. I try to imagine how thick the nails were. Did they go in the palms? I doubt it. They probably went into the wrists. When they went in, how loud did he scream? Nobody cannot scream when a nail, when a, a big train spike is driven through so that it pulls against the, the metatarsals here instead of ripping out between your fingers and you hang on them. And how long did he scream? How, how raw did his voice become? And his back, which had already been lacerated by the scourging with 39 lashes, is going up and down on the thing. And he's going, ah! This was not a pretty scene. It is nothing romantic about the cross. I think Jesus died in absolute agony. And I picture him there. And I try to think of his back. I try to think of his head. And then I, 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 I think of the, the mocking around him. I think that he's probably naked. Totally shame. Nothing beautiful about this. He's naked. And the women are there. And he's doing that. Why? So that I won't commit fornication. So that I will not pursue this fantasy, but will be with him. And then I think about that soldier who walked up has break their legs. Can you imagine? They must have used something like a baseball bat. Whack! Against these shins. Oh, I hate shins. Oh, just think of it. Only Jesus, they got to him, and he was already dead because the prophet said no bone would be broken. And so he takes a spear. Right here. Up through his ribcage, into his heart. Pulls it out again. And out comes blood and water. He's just a carcass. He was dead. Why'd you do that? And that scene has rescued me from lust a thousand times. Because if I go ahead and lust, I'm the soldier with the spear. Come on, guys. You can do this. With the help of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, you can get victory. You can, if you've messed up your life till now, you can start right now and in a year offer a woman a pure 